Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. Hello, listener. I consider myself an athlete, so this episode was really fun to dive into the mental aspect of sports. Even if your playing days are behind you, or you don't even enjoy sports, there's a ton of concepts we discuss that can be applied across all parts of life. Now, to introduce you to our guest, Madeline, or Mads, Derby, is the head mental performance consultant at Inside Rival. Mads holds numerous credentials, including a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Seton Hall University, Master's of Science in Exercise and Sports Science with a concentration in Sport Psychology from Ithaca College. She's a member of the Association for Applied Sport Psychology. She has her psychological first aid from John Hopkins and has earned her mountaineering leadership and guide training from the International Wilderness Leadership School. Her mission is to coach athletes and high performers through mental skills training to improve their performance and reach their goals. Through strategic and evidence-based programming, MADS helps athletes create their edge, learn how to respond instead of react, get out of their heads so they can play confidently, and focus when it matters the most. On this episode, MADS defines resiliency. She provides actionable steps on how to return from injury, how to raise your self-awareness, and much, much more. This episode is broken into two parts. So here we go with part one. Enjoy. Super excited to have Mads Derby on the podcast today. Mads, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, We have a mutual friend that has connected us. And so you and I have barely spoken, um, but you have a super interesting things that you do in life. And we're going to get into some of this stuff. And so just very, very excited. But to get to know you a little bit better for myself and for our listeners, I have a couple of random hypothetical what if questions. So the first one, (laughs) would you rather eat raw steak or burned popcorn? Oh, burned popcorn. I'm actually vegetarian. So raw steak, that's horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. Um, All right. How about, would you rather give up reading for a year or TV for a year? TV for a year. Interesting. What TV show would you miss most? Or what about TV would you miss most? I would probably miss the live sports. I feel like that's pretty much all I tune into anymore when it comes to um, watching television. Uh, So definitely the live sports. Like just yesterday, my husband and I were watching Formula One and what a race. So I would miss that. But um, I actually grew up intermittently with and without a TV on and off um, whenever my mom just was sick of it and wanted us to go play outside more. So I'm very used (laughs) to not having a TV. (laughs) All right. Would you rather go to a group fitness class or go to a personal trainer? Ooh. Oh gosh, I don't know why this one's stumping me. I think 
I would prefer a group class. That could be fun. Yeah, I think I would prefer that too. I don't know, because it's different. Because I usually work out by myself or maybe with one other person. So doing that group fitness class, I go with my wife occasionally and it absolutely kicks my butt. So I know I'll get a great workout. <laughs> I was about to say, does the workout kick your butt or is it your wife that's kicking your butt? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> All right. So um, Mads, you are a mental performance consultant. Could you yes. tell us what that means? Yeah, so uh, mental performance consultants work within the field of sports psychology. They're not necessarily psychologists or therapists, but they work with athletes on their mental game. That's probably the easiest way to think about it. Yeah, and so you studied sports psychology in college, and so you're dealing with a lot of different athletes. Could you give us a sense of the type of athletes that you typically work with? Yeah, um, I mean, I guess it's no secret that most athletes or coaches start to consider the mental side of their game when they've experienced um, disruptions in their performance that otherwise can't be explained by, you know, like, I just need to work on this more, or I'm just not up to my physical conditioning standards, right? Like they're recognizing that it's something else. And I would say half my clients do come to me um, after they've experienced a disruption that they themselves have identified being due to performance anxiety or choking, right? So that's how I see the majority of my clients initially. And then I would say another big grouping actually consists of athletes who are experiencing an injury that is significantly impacting their season or an upcoming season. And then after that, it tends to actually be athletes and coaches who aren't presenting with any problem per se, but they just want to take their game to the next level, whatever that means to them personally. Interesting. And how would you break out roughly the clientele you work with based on those three areas? Easily half of my clients are the clients that initially come to me who, man, you know, this never happened to me in my game before. I think it's performance anxiety. That's easily half. And then it might be, honestly, it might be 25-25 for that injury group. And then the athletes or coaches who just want to up their game. When you talked about taking your game to the next level, I feel like that from an outsider's point of view, it seems like that that is an area that is becoming a little bit more... I don't know if accepted is the right word, but just something that athletes seem to be doing more proactively again, from the outside lens. Like, are you seeing that as a, like, would that, would that percentage have been lower five years ago than 25%? My knee jerk was to say definitely, but I think where I'm noticing it more is that I'm being approached by more coaches now who see the value in it that I am individual athletes, if that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. Like right. uh, a lot of coaches want to bring it and create, uh, or bring it into their team culture rather and build a different kind of team culture than what was previously established. That's, I think, where I'm seeing the biggest growth. So is that kind of like teach the teacher? So you're teaching them to teach their team about how to enact some of these maybe principles that you share? Yeah, so I would say for, at least with the majority of coaches I've been working with, it has been, um, I, I love how you said that, teach the teacher. So they're working on how do they incorporate these ideas, um, mental skills training, how do they regularly and routinely have that a part of their team culture? What can they do with their team in regards to that? Um, whereas in the beginning, I think when I first started out, the, the big topics were, oh, motivation, you know, <laughs> and um, championship team culture. But now it's like, well, how do I get my athletes to stress less? You know, it's it's starting to feel like it's becoming a little bit more about their overall well-being, which I absolutely love because I'm a big fan of you should champion the whole person and not just the athlete. Because when you do, you you will see better athletic performance. 
Yeah, and I want to get into some of those techniques that you use if you're open to it. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I want to kind of still set the stage here. So what prompted you to want to get into becoming a mental performance consultant? It actually happened super early on and it kind of feel like by dumb luck. Uh, I was 16 and I previously actually wanted to be a sports journalist. So I've always loved sports. That passion for sports has always been there. And I gravitated, I think, towards journalism because it gave me an opportunity to interview and talk to people. And it was still a very people-focused field in my mind at the time. But I didn't love all of the aspects of journalism, just like the working environment. And just, yeah, I just didn't have the love for the journalism. Um, But I didn't really know what else to do with it until I I think it was spring semester of my junior year in high school that um, I just took an elective and it was psychology. And every day, the way the teacher would open up the classes, he would go through the alphabet and list every type of job you could have in the field of psychology alphabetically. So it wasn't even until like very late in that spring semester that he gets to the S's and he's going through, you know, school psychologist, social psychologist, sports psychologist. And I was like, excuse me, what's that? (laughs) I was like, you said something with sports. Tell me more about that. And ever since then, uh, that's just what I knew what I wanted to do. It kind of combined all my passions into one. um, And I've been pursuing it ever since. Very neat. I think that's, that's really cool that it not only got ingrained in you in high school, but that you actually stuck with it. It just made sense and it's clicked. And luckily, every time I've taken a course in it or have studied it further, my love and curiosity for it just keeps growing. Like I've never felt like I've had a slump with the subject, if that makes sense, or what I'm doing. I mean, Mads, when I was in high school, I, well, maybe as a freshman in high school, I thought I'd play in the NBA. And then I didn't (laughs) have the growth spurt. And then I didn't have the growth spurt that I anticipated. So... Um, then I turned to, well, I'll go be an orthopedic surgeon. My dad was in like the medical field and thought, said that that would be a great thing. And by the end of my freshman year of college, I realized I did not want to do that much schooling. And then, you know, here I am now with a business degree. So my point is, is like, kudos to you for finding out in high school, this is something I want to do. And then sticking with it. I just don't think there's many people that are like that. No, but I also think it's kind of ridiculous to expect teenagers to decide what they want to do for the rest of their lives. Um, And even like college freshmen, you know, who have to commit or not commit, what is it? When you declare your major right off the bat, uh, I think that can be really challenging too. Oh, I agree. You have to live some life to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, you're still growing as a person and you don't even know the art of the possible out there. Um, Even though you probably think you do because you have a lot of confidence as a 20 year old. (laughs) That Superman complex, yeah. Yeah. So well, very true. cool. All right. So it's awesome to set the stage there. And obviously you have a lot of experience to share and wisdom to share on a lot of these topics. And I want to really dive into some of the techniques if you're open to it. But before I always ask my guests two questions and I'm actually going to switch it up a little bit with you. I usually ask people to define a growth mindset, but I think one of the areas of expertise that you have, one of the competencies that you're really focused on is this concept of resilience and resiliency. So could you define resiliency? Yeah, to put it simply, it's just our capacity to recover quickly from setbacks. And I think most people talk about it as your ability to bounce back. Like I hear that terminology a lot around it, your bounce back factor. And I love resilience because it acknowledges our reality that 
hey, look, it's inevitable. You're you're going to be challenged at some point. You will have difficulties. And it's not about never experiencing hardship or barriers, but what you do to get over them or around them or work through them. And that's why I particularly love resilience. I think that theme is going to play into a lot of your answers today. I just have a guess. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. All right. So the other question I like to ask is to define your why or your purpose in life. So Mads, how would you define your why or purpose in life? I think something that's always been constant is if I can do for others, then I feel like I'm positively contributing to more than just my own needs. And I've always been big on, um, you know, actions speak louder than words and how you make a person feel is how they're going to remember you when you guys walk away from that interaction. Um, so when I think about my why in life, I kind of take it back to what am I doing for others? How am I making them feel? I think that's, yeah, just something I constantly circle back to. That reminds me of a Maya Angelou quote. Do you know the quote? Mm -mm, I don't think I do. A person will never remember what you say, but they will always remember how you made them feel. I have heard that. I take it back. I've totally heard that. <laughs> yeah. I probably botched a little bit of it, but she, and she's also had some great quotes, but it's basically mm -hmm. exactly what you said. It's people will never remember what you say. They won't, but they will always remember how you made them feel. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. She was a smart lady. All right. Very good. Very good. Well, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing your why. I love your definition around resiliency, around the bounce back factor. So going back to you know your your daily life now is working with athletes of, across all sports and coaches and athletes and just thinking through how they can become more resilient in a lot of ways. So what are a couple of common challenges that you see in your clients? I think this is one of those ones where I might have to answer a little more vaguely or just speak in generalities. How I approach mental skills training in my mind is kind of through three stages. And the first stage is raising your self-awareness. The second stage is increasing that knowledge base. And the third stage is application of skill. Um, but that first stage, raising your self-awareness, that's an ongoing life process, right? That doesn't just stop because you've had one session with me. And so when I think of what's a common challenge I see in my clients, a lot of it just comes back to raising our awareness to the situation or the presenting problem or to whatever that next level is. And it, it all starts there, but it never, it never finishes there, right? Like I said, it's an ongoing process. So a lot of common challenges relate back to that. So if someone notices maybe that they get really down on themselves, they have a loud inner critic and they engage in a lot of what I think a lot of people would just term as negative thinking, and they notice it's impacting their sport. Before we can dive into any of that, it's raising your self-awareness to what's going on. So it's true in that across any common challenge, it's going to come back to their self-awareness around what that challenge or presenting problem is. That's where you have to start. And so a common theme I see for a lot of my clients is that we really have to build up their self-awareness and then moving forward, whatever that problem is, it's constantly checking in and checking back, okay, what we're doing, your goals, your actions, do they line up with what you value? And like, have we done enough awareness building to better understand ourselves and what we value to this problem or to this goal that you have? And I think it all starts there. Mads, what's a technique to build up your self-awareness? 
I mean, it might sound obvious, but definitely talking things through uh, is a really helpful step because we're, we're often so in our heads and we go round and round and round that when we finally talk something out loud, we might find the answer in just listening to ourselves out loud as opposed to constantly hearing it on repeat in our head. So definitely voicing it out loud with someone, um, of course, someone that you have rapport with, feel trust with, you know, they're not going to judge you for hearing these things out loud with you. And then it does take a lot of introspection. So a lot of willingness to confront maybe things that are uncomfortable or take accountability for repeated behaviors that you're trying to change. And of course, introspection, that can be done through intentional prompts that maybe you're talking through with someone, or it can be, you know, (laughs) something that you're answering and journaling in your own free time and some self-reflection there. When you initially answer the question, you're talking about talking things out. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, I talk things out in my head all the time. <laughs> um, and it doesn't, like you said, doesn't really go anywhere in a lot, of, a lot of times. But you're specifically saying actually verbalize it or journal it, get it onto paper, get it out out there. And a lot of times you can kind of maybe figure out maybe what the real, what the problem is or find a solution. And that's, it sounds like, is maybe the beginning stages of raising your self-awareness. Yeah, absolutely. Because, and especially if you're writing it out too, um, there's value in that too. Because you might see what you're writing down on paper and and something might stand out to you that didn't stand out to you the same way it would have inside your own head with whatever voice you're hearing or not hearing, right? Some people don't have an internal dialogue. So it's just another way to help see it with a different perspective. You mentioned this approach to mental skills training. So the first one was raise self-awareness. Mm-hmm. What about the second one? So that's increasing your knowledge base. And I guess in some ways too, that's all of these categories. Again, it's not like you learn all you could and that's that. Uh, All these should be thought of as like a continuous process. But yeah, increasing knowledge base. You don't know what you don't know. And I think we're going to get into this maybe a little bit later. But when we're talking about performance anxiety and fear especially sometimes there's a lot of benefit to increasing our knowledge around well how does fear work in our body like what's physically going on why do we have fear reactions and then similarly with you know athletes who are going through injury when they are initially injured sometimes a benefit is understanding the rehabilitation process and all that information that they can get so that even eases anxiety off of the journey they're about to go on they have a little bit more sense of control over okay here's my steps here's what comes next so just yeah knowledge it's never a bad thing (laughs) when it it comes to our performance um and so that's just you know around the circumstances of what we're experiencing and then of course the obvious thing is those skills in particular so it's one thing to look at an athlete and say hey focus or like hey just breathe but it's very rare that we have people talking through hey here's how you focus hey here's how you breathe right so that's another piece to it too yeah and i want to get into techniques you're probably going to sense a theme from me and you know (laughs) understand maybe a couple of these techniques as as an athlete myself and you know as someone who i'm I know has listeners who are athletes and, you know, want to be a little bit better. So if they can take away one or two techniques from this conversation, I think that would be really neat. So I'll bookmark on the, you know, how you focus or how you breathe. And if you're willing to share some wisdom there, I think that would be really cool. All right. So you mentioned injury. So I know that you're fascinated with this side and how it's about 25%, it seems like of the, the athletes maybe that you work with. So where does this fascination and passion come from from you around injury 
just being passionate about sports psychology, there is a lot of overlap with medical science, neuroscience, um, and how all these things relate. Um, and that it's truly a mind-body connection. So I think if you are fascinated with sports psychology, you're likely fascinated with some other sides of the medical science as well, or behavioral science. Um, but also I would say this one's very personal to me as well. I actually had a career ending illness um, at 17 that took me away from my sport. And so um, that was shortly after I had, you know, discovered sports psychology and was like, oh, this is what I would do for the rest of my life. And then I had this career ending illness. So I think I became more attuned into the psychological process behind that because of what I was experiencing myself firsthand. What sport were you playing? I was playing field hockey. I had been playing uh, about, I think, 10 years. So I was going into my senior season and I just started getting very sick. And it took like another three years until I got a diagnosis. So it was a very lengthy process. So I had a lot of, <laughs> I had a lot of time for some introspection and to read up on a few things and get into the psychology of injury and the psychology of illness. Sounds like it. Are you open to sharing what the diagnosis was? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, so I ended up being diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Are you familiar with that illness at all? I have heard of that disease. Or is, is it a disease or an illness? Oh, so kind of controversial. Um, it's safe to call it a condition for sure. I think it's okay to call it an illness. Um, it was considered a psychosomatic illness until the 80s, and they only revised the diagnostic criteria for it in 2008. So this illness is still not well understood. And because of that, there's a lot of controversy over what to term it as and who should treat it. So there's, it's not just you, it's, it's kind of a tough one. Um, and hence why it, it takes even three years to be diagnosed with it. So it's, it's a messy one. It's, kind of called a uh, invisible illness because unless someone tells you they have it, you wouldn't readily know that someone is experiencing or dealing with it. But it, it does affect your, or at least it's thought to affect your central nervous system and how you process signals um, from stimuli or just signals within your own body. And they have recently discovered that there seems to be a correlation with neuroinflammation. So that has to deal with your brain. So they're still figuring it out. I call it an illness. It's okay to call it a condition. Um, it's definitely very real. I can tell you that. <laughs> so I, they've definitely moved away from calling it psychosomatic um, because it does have origins in the body, very real origins, but they're still not sure what the appropriate term is for it. Well, I appreciate you sharing. And I don't want to get stuck on this. I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Like when you were on the field, you know, as a 15, 16, 17 year old, how did this condition manifest itself for you? It, it was kind of weird because I was, you know, similar to you growing up, I was involved in so many sports. Field hockey was my number one, but I was active constantly. So at first the aches and pains just kind of seemed normal with how active I was. And then I started to notice that with rest, these aches and pains wouldn't go away. And the there's two hallmarks to the illness. And the first one is widespread pain throughout your body and it's because your central nervous system is like i said misinterpreting signals so my body thinks it's always in pain even if there is no um stimulus causing the pain does that make sense mm -hmm. and then the second one is just chronic fatigue so have you ever had mono 
ooh, no, but I have had friends and family members <laughs> that have, and it's, yeah, you're basically, you feel like you're, have no energy for multiple months. Absolutely no energy. So that's how it's first started coming on is that the pain didn't seem to get better with rest. If anything, it all of a sudden became very constant. And then I started to get more tired and tired. But of course, when you're a teenager, that's kind of harder to catch. And that's exactly what um, doctors first were like, oh, it's just mono, like you're fine. So that's, that's kind of what happened. So going into my senior season, yeah, it just felt like I never had energy for practice and games, um, but that wasn't yet affecting my performance. It was just one of those things where as soon as I would get home after practice or after a game, I would be like dead asleep on the couch until someone woke me up for dinner, uh, which is not normal, right? (laughs) Uh, But that started to look like my season. And then before I knew it, um, I also was experiencing uh, numbness. So I started dropping my stick all the time or I also get really dizzy, so I started losing my balance. So I'd be out there in the middle of the game and I'd be, you know, ready to take on an oncoming player and I would just drop my stick and I'd be like looking at my hands like, why didn't you just do that? And I like I would misjudge like tackles kind of goofy. I think that's when I started noticing it the most is when I was like, how did I miss that tackle by like a foot? Like it, it was just this weird sensation and I couldn't figure it out. And it was even to the point where my coach is like, what's going on with you? And I was like, I have, I legitimately have no clue. And anytime we went to the doctor, that's all they kept saying is like, oh, she's a teenager. Oh, it might be mono. Like it was just uh, very subtle at first. And then um, it just got rapidly worse the summer going into college. And then that's when I had to have that co- the conversation with my collegiate coach. And because we didn't have a diagnosis, there was no red shirting. So she was just kind of like, well, if you're not going to play, I'd like to give your scholarship to someone else. Wow. What a tough thing to go through as a competitor and an athlete, but how valuable that experience must be as you work with athletes now who may not go through that exact condition, but are going through similar type things, you know, in their sport, whatever they decide to, to be pursuing and competing in that perspective must be very valuable for you. Yeah, I think it helps with that empathy factor um, because I can understand and like, look, I might not have, you know, torn my ACL or done any of these injuries or have this illness, but I can understand the distress that comes with that. And a lot of these psychosocial factors that happen too during the process, that's really common for a lot of athletes that get injured or experience an illness that might take them away from their season or their team a bit. Um, There's a lot of common experiences, even if it's, you know, a different cause. Um, So I think definitely empathy. I think one thing that it's made me more attuned to um, is other invisible injuries or illnesses, but like more particularly with concussions, because that's another classic example of unless someone tells you, like you might not be readily able to observe that that person's having a massive headache their first day back at practice, right? That one's a little bit more subtle too, but that's also very real and can have some some potential consequences if it's not treated and managed right. Yeah. And obviously injuries are very common in sports. So how do athletes use mental performance consultants to be resilient as they get back out into their sport? I guess I kind of have my athletes focus on five things from the time they're injured through their rehabilitation and then return to play. And in uh, mental performance consulting and like injury protocol, you kind of think of these stages 
as like, okay, the initial stage injury phase. So that's like the first, like I said, the initial incident to like maybe the next two to three weeks there, depending on what the injury is. And then that next phase, when they are starting to get into their rehabilitation process and the recovery phase, that's the one that might last for a couple of months there. And then you're ultimately into the third stage, return to full activity or, um, yeah, essentially return to play. So these five things I'm about to say, they do kind of shift with the different goals of each phase of your rehabilitation process. But it's generally number one, the biggest one for me is their social support. And that might not sound like a mental skill, but social support or connection, that is a massive contributing factor to resilience. We are social creatures. We do need to rely on others. There is no such thing as a lone wolf. Um, but I think a lot of these things are perpetuated in sports and like, oh, you got to be tough or like suck it up, get through it. But ultimately, you do need social support. So that's my first thing I typically do with my athletes is, hey, who's supporting you in this? And I just kind of check in with them about who they perceive to be supportive, where they can seek out more support from, just make sure that that's kind of set as a baseline. Um, and then after that, it does look like revisiting goals because obviously you need to adjust um, especially again, if this is taking you out of the season, you, you're going to have to revisit your goals and, and make goals more attuned into your recovery process. And not to say that being injured is exciting, but your rehabilitation process can still be an exciting time because you can make your rehab like it's your full-time sport. You can show up and show the same dedication and commitment to it. And a lot of times when athletes kind of, um, adjust their goals like that. They find more motivation. They find better adherence to the exercises or the things they have to do to get through the rehab process. And a lot of times these athletes bounce back even better than they were before they got injured. So revisiting goals is the next big thing. And then the last three can kind of all relate to one another, um, but can also be used separately. But it's uh, visualizing or imagery, uh, self-talk, and then relaxation. Visualizing, you can still imagine practice when especially when you can't maybe get practice in um so like if you're a pitcher and you have to get a tommy john surgery you can still imagine pitching and that can still be sufficient practice believe it or not and then there's healing imagery so you can also at night uh when you're in a relaxed state or during your rehab process uh if you're icing or something like that you can sit and imagine that part of your body actually healing and athletes who do this tend to recover faster and then self-talk, that's just checking in with yourself, um, making sure you are trying to keep it optimistic or at the very least resilient. But it's important to meet yourself where you're at. You don't want to let self-talk run rampant and turn into toxic positivity. So self-talk is one of those ones where it's like, hey, make sure you have time to process what you're going through. It's not uncommon for athletes who are injured or face um, facing a new, I guess, illness or a diagnosis to go through a grief cycle themselves. And that's not a linear path. You know, you can jump back and forth in all these different stages at any time. So it's just, yes, you self-talk, try to keep it, you know, optimistic or resilient and meet yourself where you're at. You do not want to suppress your emotions during this time. And then the last one, like I said, relaxing, that's so crucial to anyone with injured anything because your body physically also needs to relax. If you're staying tense and tight, that's not doing that injured area any good. So it's important to find time just to maybe practice some breathing, listen to meditation, do something that is a form of self-care that's actively relaxing. 
I really like the way you break that down, by the way, the, the top five. And you mentioned the breathing. So I have a lot of curiosity weaved through this, as you can imagine. But you talked earlier, I said I would bookmark it, but you talked about, you know, breathing exercises or meditation. So when you're talking about application of skill, how do you guide an athlete on how to breathe? So it, it does kind of depend. Um, typically when I'm working with athletes from day one, breathing is like a passive assignment. I give them to practice on their own. And then as we continue to work together, then we start introducing it a little bit more into sessions, um, whether that's opening session with breathing or ending it with breathing, just so we're practicing it together. But in this time, this like kind of passive education time, I'm letting them try a bunch of different techniques because what I might like might not be what you like to regulate your own emotions and arousal control. So for me personally, I really love 478, but you might really like 711 breathing. So I first go about by just giving them a bunch of different techniques um, because typically, not always, but typically when an athlete is interested in breathing and um yeah, maybe it is performance anxiety we're working on. That means we're trying to find a way to calm ourselves down. So there's a couple different variations of calming breathing techniques, controlled breathing exercises. And there's typically one that you're just going to, it's going to click. Like you'll, you'll be able to feel it and you're like, oh, I really like this. And then that's the one where it's like, all right, cool. That's going to be your go-to breathing method. What's your go-to breathing method? I love four, seven, eight, and that's where you breathe in to a count of four, you hold for a count of seven, and then you exhale for a count of eight. And I guess a good rule of thumb, if especially if you are looking to calm down and regulate any emotions or, or your arousal, like you're too keyed up, or you might be psyching out, I think is like, you know, <laughs> how a lot of athletes would talk about it. You just want to focus on making your exhale longer than your inhale, because that's what's activating your parasympathetic. And that's what's telling your body to calm down. I just tried four, seven, eight, as you were giving that answer. <laughs> do you want me to send you the whole list after this? I'm, I mean, actually I do. That would be awesome. <laughs> I will. <laughs> and then I can, I'll try them all and then I'll text you and I'll tell you which one, which one was best. That's really interesting. And so these five things, so you're going through these five things, which again are social support, connection, and then number two is revisiting of goals, and then number three is visualizing, number four is self-talk, and number five is relaxation. And going through these five things and focusing on these five things, which then allows, as you go through these items, the idea is that with understanding of these areas and talking through these areas, that the athlete in your eyes, is as best prepared as they can be to return to action. Yeah, there's so much focus on what you're doing physically to get back out there that I think it's really easy to overlook the mental. But when you break it down like this, you realize that all these things are within your control to do, right? So revisiting goals, that's completely within your control to speak with your athletic trainer, or your physiotherapist, whoever's overseeing your process and be like, oh, okay, so can you help me break this down to stages so I know what I'm looking forward to? Or, you know, when I've reached this range of motion, then I can do this, you know, it, it gives you something to look forward to. It gives you something to work on. And just like how you have goals for the season, it, it's just as important to have goals in your recovery. Um, one of my favorite quotes, and I I don't know who said this, so please don't ask, but it's um, not uh, making goals is like playing a game without keeping score, right? Hmm. So that's a way just to take back control in that process. 
because the whole idea is that you are managing your injury. The injury is not managing you because I think a part of the distress of becoming ill or having an injury is all of a sudden you kind of feel betrayed by your body or by the circumstances and things feel out of control. And that can quickly turn into, you know, feeling powerless, learned helplessness, and just a couple of cycles that can put you down a path where not just talking about athletic performance, but talking about overall well-being, right? I only work in the context of performance enhancement, but a lot of these skills do transfer over into your overall well-being. But when you break them down like this, you realize that there's stuff you can be actively doing every day if you want to help yourself get back out there. That's not just the physical stuff. Yeah, and I think that that's really good. I mean, I over the last couple of months, I've... uh not to turn this into my own consulting thing with you, but I, I'm, I messed up my UCL in my left elbow and I'm a lefty and uh, I'm very active in throwing ball or, you know, using a racket and your UCL, you can't really do those things if you, if you strain your UCL. So I, I can really relate currently to this because as consider myself an athlete, I'm not, you know, a pro athlete or anything, but I consider myself someone who is very active and so not to be able to use my dominant hand in a lot of the sports and things that I like to do um, has had me certainly revisit goals <laughs> in what is a, what does an active day look like? Because an active day has definitely changed. And so I really like, I, I can certainly resonate with that because yeah, it's like, oh, you know, maybe used to do a, a great day would be 50 pushups, but now it's like, oh, if I can do five pushups on my knees today, then it's a huge day right? It's like a complete, you're completely revisiting those goals. So I can certainly appreciate that. And then as you think about an athlete, whether they're tearing their ACL or, you know, having a concussion or dealing with a condition, returning to the field and maybe having a little bit of that performance anxiety or fear, I feel like has to be pretty relevant in the conversations that you have as well. Oh yeah. So that's, that's kind of like the final stage in their rehab process is when they are either preparing to, or they're actually returning to play. And, um, you know, if they are working with a great team, so whoever those other support systems are, um, professionally, but also just, you know, socially, then this seems to be lessened. But, um, if there's still a little bit of uncertainty in the process, you will see that returning to play as in they might not trust that body part like they used to, especially if it was an acute injury. So something that happened really sudden, those tend to be like the big blowouts that you see. So us talking about ACLs and those kind of tears, right? So like that athlete potentially could have a fear of re-injuring and that, that is very real um, and can happen in that last phase when they're returning to play and that uncertainty. So that's why like during this process, it's really important to be communicating with whoever is overseeing your your rehab and your exercises and your mobility and all of that, whatever that might look like, and that you are trusting them. You are learning to trust back into your body. You guys are doing sport specific exercises that make sense so that when you're out there on the field or on the court, it's not the first time you're doing that movement again and testing something out. So that's definitely a big part of it. I think that's probably the most common thing when athletes do come back is that uncertainty and that fear of re-injury. What advice do you give to athletes outside of having that support system when they when they do have that fear? So I think visualization can be really powerful. 
And again, this kind of pairs with self-talk. So if you are an athlete and you're executing a skill or strategy and to safely do it, you know it has to be at 100%, but when you start approaching it and that fear creeps in, you notice you're doing it at maybe 80%, right? Like you're tentative, you're hesitant. That's actually when you're more likely to be re-injured is when you're holding back or you're starting to perform in a way where your muscles are too tense, right? So visualizing yourself ahead of time, seeing that successful return to play can be huge and seeing that successful use of that body part and maybe even seeing it better, right? Like I said, a lot of athletes who follow these steps, they end up coming back even better than they were before the injury. So visualization plays a huge role into that. And then, like I said, the self-talk, um, So where's your focus? Again, if you're being hesitant, if you're holding back, you're not going at this thing 100%, your focus is likely on what you're trying to avoid versus what you are trying to do. And when our focus is on what we're trying to avoid, we're either hyper-focusing on the wrong cues, which again, (laughs) we're focusing on the wrong stuff during play, we can get injured, or um, our focus might just be more generalized and everywhere and not on what it is we're trying to do. So then inevitably when we mess up that play, that's going to affect our confidence. So that self-talk, keep it towards what it is you want to do. So, you know, if you're a basketball player, Clay, your thoughts are gonna be rebound, not don't miss this, right? Um, Because rebounding, that gives you actionable steps to take to do the thing you actually wanna do versus don't miss, your brain's gonna go, uh, what do we do, what do we do? What do we do not to miss? And that doesn't really answer what it is Uh, or where your focus could be and what ultimately would be more helpful and safe for your performance. So that's where self-talk can kind of come back in to manage fears returning to play. On the visualization front, I'm envisioning you're laying in bed, lights are out, your phone's nowhere near, you've eliminated all distraction, and then you're really visualizing yourself being on the field or whatever, on the mountain, on the on the pitch and you're visualizing whatever as and being trying to be as specific as possible and doing this for as long as you'll allow yourself to do it. Maybe before you fall asleep um, is, is my assumption correct or should, or, or what advice, like how would you like being very specific? How would you advise someone going about visualizing stuff like this? That's actually such a great question. I love that you asked that. And two powerful words that I learned in my field is it depends because everything we do is so highly individualized. So Clay, I know you like pickleball, basketball, um, but like, let's pretend that you participate in a sport that demands a high level of arousal or activation. If I were to have you visualize right before bed, then that might over arouse you and then you can relax to fall asleep. And sleep is so important for I mean, for, you don't even have to be an athlete. Sleep is important, period. So right before bed, if you know that it's going to amp you up, might not be the best time to do any um, visualization, whether it's return, like you said, return to whatever that might look like for you, or if you're doing healing imagery, that might not be necessarily relaxing. Bedtime is certainly a place where um, I think it's easy, especially if you're just trying visualization, you've never really done it or gone through a structured thing before. Bedtime does make sense so long as it's relaxing. Um, But if you think you're going to get keyed up, uh, then creating time in your day where that's not going to then disturb the rest of your day would would be better. And so sometimes 
um, especially if you are injured. There might be natural pauses in your day, maybe around your recovery process. So if, um, you know, if someone's driving you to your appointment, you can put on your headphones and take that next three to five minutes to imagine what you want to imagine. Or, um, you know, there's times where you work with athletes early on and all their rehab is in the athletic training room is sitting on one of those cots and they maybe have like some sort of machine, uh, like making sure their legs get circulation and they're just sitting there chilling. That could even be a really great time. You just want to think about it regardless of what you pick. You just want to think about it as, okay, this is a habit I'm trying to instill routinely. So where do I have, um, these natural pauses in my day that occur pretty regularly so that this habit can seamlessly slip in there and stay, right? So you kind of want to work with what your day is. Um, Bedtime, that's a great one to play around with so long as you can go to sleep afterwards. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I mean, what I'm taking away from this with my UCL injury and not being able to throw a football at the moment is I need to just visualize myself throwing the ball 75 yards, 80 yards, but not doing it during you know, as I'm about to fall asleep, because that's obviously going to, you know, keep me up because I'm so pumped that I can throw the ball (laughs) further than any other human being on earth. (laughs) Exactly. And I, I would say maybe just one other thing to think about visualizing is that it can be helpful to visualize where you're currently at. And then the next stage, instead of just always visualizing that final outcome, of course, when you're about to return to play, it makes sense to visualize that outcome of normal season play. But when you're first rehabbing, the next step for visualization might be, I'm just going to keep rolling with like an ACL and like getting your leg to, you know, extend. Get to a certain degree. Yeah. And so that might be the visualization is seeing it extend. And then the next might be like being able to balance on it with no support, right? Like, so your visualization should match what it is you can do and what you believe you can do. You don't want to (laughs) visualize past your capabilities necessarily. Mads, are you saying that I can't throw the ball 75 yards? I mean, can you? (laughs) No. Certainly Certainly cannot. But I really like the breakdown. I'm glad I kind of used that joke because it allowed you to actually insert some actual wisdom instead of me just joking around here. But yeah, saying, hey, visualize current and then maybe next step, but don't go to step 45 yet. Keep visualizing and keep kind of being in the present moment of of what's happening with your body. Yeah, that's really cool. And, and I love what you said about building a habit and trying to find like how do you go about building that habit? And you have to be, in order to develop a habit, you have to be cued, right? So say, like, hey, I'm going to bed. This is what I do now. I, you know, lay in bed and visualize this. Or I'm going to go take a shower. So in the shower, I'm not going to listen to any music or anything. I'm just going to like, this is going to be, I'm going to spend three minutes visualizing or being on that cot at the PT. Like having those cues is huge. And I start to think about, well, once the, the athlete is back to full strength and they're starting to play, they can use this visualization in other ways, right? It's not just visualizing, you know, return to from injury. It's how can I visualize being successful or making the right pass or, you know, hitting the right shot or whatever it is, visualize myself breathing, doing my breathing technique on the field when a certain thing happens. And I think that that, I would imagine that that is a great habit to build post-injury too. To me, it's so foundational, just like self-talk is. Um, Cause if you can see it, you can believe it and you can do it. I I'm a, big believer in that. And I've seen it work countless of times. There is a really just phenomenal example of this in the past winter Olympics, actually with a skier 
she was trying to land a trick she had actually never previously landed. She had never even practiced this skill before. All she had done, and she was one of those athletes who could do it right before bed, but she would go over in her mind the skill and just see it in her mind. And she would do that every night. And then on the last day for, you know, going for gold, essentially, she decided to throw that trick and she had done it over and over in her mind that her body knew exactly what to do. And that's kind of what visualization allows you to do it. It primes those neural pathways for performance. And so she had that capability. She had that strength and she had those um, preparatory skills. So not saying that I completely understand all of the uh, biomechanics that she went through, but like, you know, she knew she could do this kind of a twist and she knew she could do this and that. So she just kind of put them all together in her head and then she got gold. (laughs) She landed it. So yeah, visualization can be very powerful if you um, commit to it and do it regularly. I remember watching her gold medal run and at 18 years old, it's just incredible for someone to be able to do what she was doing. And I had no idea that she had never done it before. And the fact that she was using visualization to, to prep herself to be able to go do that. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah. Can you imagine like, Hey, this is the first time I'm throwing this extremely difficult trick (laughs) at the Olympics. Oh, by the way, it's at the, yeah, at the Olympics. Yeah. (laughs) But that's just like such a great example of, of that skill and how it can be used. So yes, when you say like, hey, it's not just for injury, it can be for any aspect of your performance. I completely agree. And it can also be used to even develop your confidence. So if there's a situation you're heading into that you know tends to give you those butterflies or it messes with your nerves a little bit, you can actually, I call it a cope ahead. You can cope ahead to that situation. And so you can kind of prepare yourself by visually imagining yourself going into that situation. Um, Clay, I'm going to pick on you again. So with basketball, like let's say that free throws make you nervous. Um, So you can imagine yourself going up to that line, going through your pre-performance routine. Maybe you can even imagine those nerves coming up and then you're going to visualize yourself successfully coping through that and then making your shot. That's another great way to use visualization is for situations that normally give you performance anxiety and just seeing yourself anticipate manage those nerves or whatever comes up for you and then successfully executing anyways all right next time i'm at the free throw line i'm gonna be thinking (laughs) about this conversation all right that concludes part one of the conversation with mads we continue the dialogue in part two so go check it out it's episode number 15 on the build with clay podcast enjoy Hey listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build with Clay on Instagram at Build with Clay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.